Welcome to a very special episode of Love is the Author. My name is Jamie. If you're new here, thank you for your attention and your curiosity. If you're returning, thank you for your support. Today I am interviewing Miguel Rivera, who is my mentor in the way of the Sweat Lodge from 2014 to 2017. I've been the spiritual director of a treatment center in Malibu and they uh, they sent me up into the mountains one day to try out the sweat lodge and meet me with Miguel. The center wanted to add uh, the sweat lodge to its regular curriculum, and I didn't know much about the sweat lodge. You know, it was um, it was something that I'd heard about for years, and so I tried it out, and I met Miguel, and it changed my life forever. And so for three years, weekly, I helped him co-facilitate sweat lodges for clients of this center who are newly rehabilitated, who are balancing themselves out from their mental health issues, who are just freshly sober. And this was a pretty insane thing. (laughs) For three years, I brought hundreds of people up to the sweat lodge, um, 15 or so at a time. And people who were coming from all these backgrounds and all these traumas had the willingness to enter into a hut that's completely dark and full of steam and sweat out their issues. And I never had any difficulty. It's very amazing. You know, no one ever got hurt and I never had any difficulty with any of these clients. And we're talking about people from all over the country, a varying age, people in their sixties, people who are late teens or twenties, thirties, forties, all different people different medications, all getting in this lodge, you know, for three years. It was just three beautiful years of uh, time on really important land that we talk about, land owned by Mary and Eric Lloyd Wright, who uh, have this land that they've been offering for sacred activity for two decades. And uh, you're going to hear more about them at some point. So much of my understanding of the where uh, all these traditions intersect, you know, uh, with experiencing the sweat lodge for those three years, I saw how closely related many of the ideas of the lodge are to Tibetan Buddhism and Hinduism and even aspects of Christianity. And that's something that Miguel used to say that we are all a family. And that uh, all these ideas are all brothers and cousins and sisters and aunts. Miguel has been uh, somebody who works with veterans. He works with the youth. He's a mentor to many. He's also a musician and he's worked on the films. Uh, These are fantastic films. If you haven't seen Baraka or Samsara, they're films where a film crew went across uh, the entire planet uh, for years and filmed the most extraordinary aspects of life in all of its expressions but you see all these different people from around the world all these different things that are going on and um, Miguel worked on both of those films and tells a story this is my conversation with Miguel and I hope that what is said here resonates with you so without any further ado here's my conversation with Miguel Rivera
Miguel Rivera. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jamie, for inviting me. I look forward to spending this time with you together this afternoon. I know. That's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel, actually. You said it so much better. I'm, this is not another phone call for me. This is not another uh, podcast. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I don't have uh, many teachers who are still alive. Um, uh-huh. And you're somebody I spent a number of years with, about three years or so. Almost all of that was in sacred activity, but mm-hmm. I thought maybe we could start with your origin, you know, um, where were you born and what was life like there? I was born in Guatemala in 1953, which is uh, quite a few years ago, but um, <laughs> my father and my mother were both in the medical field. My father was a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And he done a, he grew up in Guatemala, and my heritage is mixed. My father was a surgeon, studied to be a surgeon in Guatemala, and then decided to do a residency in the United States. He wanted he specialized in cleft palate restoration because there were some of the things uh, those were some of the issues that my family dealt with. Was we had several members that had cleft palate, so oh, he wanted wow. cleft palate restoration. Yeah, so he came to the United States to do a residency in surgery at a hospital in Jersey City, St. Francis. In 1948, I believe. Wow! And my mar- my mother was a nurse in the operating room. That's how they met. Oh my so god! I have, of her being, uh, you know, being handing him instruments during operations, and they fell in love. They got married in upstate New York. She was from upstate New York. Yeah. From a Polish family, my family is a mixture. Uh, my father's family is a mixture of uh, Spanish and. Uh, native descent, Maya Kiche in particular, so we have all that. Mm. And then my mother is full blood first generation Polish. My grandfather on her side was born and raised in Poland and left there right at the, at the outset, right before World War One. He didn't want to get conscripted into the Russian army. What is Maya ways, Kiche? Yeah, Maya Kiche. There's different ways of spelling Kiche. The traditional one is K apostrophe I C H apostrophe C H E apostrophe. Mm, okay. Like quiche, like the French quiche, but it's pronounced quiche. Uh huh. But that's the indigenous root that's in, in me, uh, cursing through my veins at some point. But basically, with a medical family, my father did not want to live in 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 the United States. So we went back to Guatemala in 1949. Uh, my father tragically died in a car accident in 1956 when I was three. Oh wow! So my mother raised us basically by herself. Uh, at that time, my father had a clinic in the front part of the house. Mm. My uncle, who was my father's brother, was also a surgeon, mm-hmm. and he came over, took over the clinic. And during the years that I was growing up, my mother built a hospital in the back part of the house, oh like a ten bed hospital. Wow! So I grew up in in med, in in, uh, in in the in the arms of medicine. You know? Yeah. I used to, uh, we we'd open up the door. There was always people knocking, looking for the doctor, or bringing somebody that needed a doctor, and it was always. You know, sometimes my father and my uncle many times did not charge people for um, wow. for, for medicine. Yeah. So, seriously, baskets of food would appear, chickens would appear, somebody would bring in a load of firewood, all <laughs> kinds of things like that, you know, because that's how they work. Yeah, it's amazing. Did you, can I ask you about your father? You were saying that he he was specific to cleft palate uh, surgery, and you said that that, that was an issue in your family, so yeah. is that is it fair to assess then that the inspiration directly was from having this experience in the family and wanting to do something about it and then pursuing a medical career? Sure, yeah. My father and one of my aunts were born with cleft palates. Huh. You know? yeah. Wow. So that directly led to him going through all of the stages of 
medical school. I yeah, I never understood that, but that was I think they were they were de- de- definitely dedicated to healing, you know, in many mm-hmm. different forms. Well, certainly, but I think, yeah, that was an inspiration for it. Yeah, definitely. So did did um, do you have any memories of your father? No, I don't. I yeah. don't. I have many of my uncle, but not of my father. No. Right, and I, such an interesting thing too to have an uncle f- fulfill that role in the area of the house where your father was, and yeah. and just having some placeholder. Of course, it could never take the place of your father, but you know, the the potentially the next best thing. I mean, the, the brother. Well, it's like a surrogate position, you know. And so, there's a lot of things right. that I learned from from my uncle, my, my, my father and my uncle had a lot of similar interests. Mm-hmm. Although my uncle really wanted to be a lawyer. He didn't want to be a doctor, but because my grandparents could not afford textbooks for both of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> he ended up being a, a doctor. And some of my aunts say he was better than your dad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can go back to Guatemala to this day and people still remember both my uncle and my father. And they go, Oh yeah. I've had people lift their shirts up and show me scars where they got operated on and how they saved their lives. You know? So it's like, wow. He died in 1956 and this is 2021 right now. And I can still until 22, excuse me. Yeah. But I can and people still go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him. You know, it's kind of like that. So they were kind of legends in their own right. You know? That's amazing. That must warm the heart, I mean, in the in the way of being able to see the difference that your father made long after he was gone and, and now you into. Yeah, well, I appreciate it now. When I was younger, I was angry because I, didn't, I, I was resentful of the fact that all these people knew my father, but I didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had to work that one out. It took me a few years, but now I understand. Yeah. But by living... By him leaving those kind of tracks, it opened up a lot of doors for me. Uh, I learned how to cultivate gratitude yeah. from that. Is that something that you were shown, or is that something that, I mean, was that something that was pointed to by family members of, of gratitude? Because it's a, a topic, certainly right now, of like all the variances of gratitude and how that can be expressed, how it can be felt. Was it just you cultivating that? Yeah, just me cultivating through my experiences much later in life. I mean, you know, I, I that I didn't understand how, what the value of that was until much, much later. I was about 30. I was in my, young, my early 30s by the time I started to realize that. You know, yeah. that, was, that was a while. I'm 68 now, so it took me a while to figure it out. Well, if you're lucky, you figure it out in your 30s still, you know. There's a lot of people that haven't figured it out, you know, yeah. deep into their lives, yeah. So, so, so how did the anger show up for you? I was just angry. You, you, you get destructive, you know, when you're young, you break things, you get into a lot of fights, you do a lot of drinking. Mm, Right, right. (laughs) That was what we would did. We would break things up. And I didn't understand that in Guatemala. I mean, I, my mother got really sick at one point in time, but she Mm. developed uh, lupus in it. In the early sixties, they really didn't know what lupus was. Yeah. So I decided to come back to the United States in 1966 when I was 13 at the time. Mm-hmm. And the 60s were a huge transition time for a lot of people. And coming into out of Guatemala, I, because I was sort of bicultural, I didn't know where I fit in, you know, because I didn't feel like I was 100% Guatemalan. People look at me today still, they go, you don't look like you're from Guatemala. <laughs> right. But a stereotype idea of what somebody that was born in Guatemala, what they look like, you know, yeah. and I don't really fit that one. So I always had a hard time, a hard time uh, finding myself at home no matter where I lived. It took me a long time, like I said, into my 30s before I figured that one out. So we came to the United States when I was 13, but all along, I mean, I had already spent time. Uh, I would go with my uncle. My uncle would take me to um, 
the hospital to do rounds with him. Mm-hmm. He would bring me in to watch surgery and operate. I would, uh, you know, I would go make house calls with him from time mm-hmm. to time, you know. Wow. So I was always told that I was going to grow up to be a surgeon just like my father. Mm-hmm. So I had that, and somehow I, a part of me was going, I don't know if I want this, you know. So I went to work when I came, when I was in high school, I worked in an emergency room for two years, one day on, one day off. What, did, what were on. the qualifications that, that in the 60s? You just had to show up and get a, get a CPR course. I was an orderly. I was just an orderly. Gotcha. So my job was just to basically clean up. Yeah. and take phone calls and things like that. But it was a small enough hospital that I, they would do a lot of things. So sometimes they would leave me alone in the emergency room. You would never see this today, mm-hmm. but they would leave me alone in, an, in the emergency room. And the first thing that I had to do is get on the phone and call the doctor and the nurse as soon as somebody walked in. And I saw all kinds of things walk in when I was all by myself. You know? oh, yeah. so the guy comes in one time and he goes, I need help. And I go, I roll out. I need a stretcher. So I go out there on the, on the, on the entrance. There's a woman in the back seat, basically with the head, a baby. She's delivering a baby in the back seat of a car. You know? <laughs> having to, I, so I'm helping her, helping him put her on the stretcher. And I, there's a baby being born right there in front of my very own eyes. You wow. Know? And you saw things like that come in all the time, you know, I, was that thrilling? The, well, I realized that uh, uh, after two years of working in, in, in that kind of an environment, you begin to recognize patterns in people's lives. Interestingly enough for me, is several, uh, not several, but many of the surgeons that were working there were, were studying to be psychiatrists, which to me was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from that is if you're a healer, you're always looking for where the root of the disease is. They believe that it was in the mind somewhere, some someplace that was not, substantiated and mm-hmm. after interviewing my job my primary job was to get people's information you know mm-hmm. like uh you do it in any emergency room address you know telephone number insurance and then what happened and fill out the form and then pass them on to it but i had to i had to also administer first aid and in many cases i'll never forget this there was a woman that came in one time and i could see in her eyes this and I could read it, the expression on her forehead, and asked me how I could, but it was like watching, reading a teleprompter, and the words that I saw on her forehead or that she was expressing to me through her eyes was, I am safe now. I can mm. be safe. Wow. And once I recognized that, I realized that people do terrible things to themselves or allow terrible things to happen to them so they can go somewhere where they can be safe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that really speaks to me about what's going on inside the homes. You know, what's going on inside people's houses? That's, I've learned this over the years. I've yeah. been watching in some form or another since I was basically 10 years old. I started tracking people's experiences because of my experiences at home. You know, mm-hmm. people are always looking for some sort of a sanctuary in some form or another. That's one, that's one, it's not the only thread, but it's a very significant one. Yeah. And then I realized after two years that maybe the answer was not doing it in the, in the traditional AMA way, not that kind of a protocol. So I decided to do something else instead. I decided to become a musician. Yeah, Yeah, it's a natural progression. (laughs) Yeah, but I I didn't quite decide. I I said I had a scholarship to go to university, and so I decided to to study culture. I started my culture. I created my own major with Latin American studies, film, and anthropology. Mm-hmm. You know, Vietnam was raging. There was a lot of conflicts in Latin America with all the revolutionary movements. Yeah. And I realized that if we need to make a, a change, you have to really change the way people perceive the world, what they understand, how they make meaning with the world. I mean, I can express this now in better terms than I could then, but sure. I knew that 
culture had to be reshaped if we were if we really wanted to make a serious dent in in the the and the, and the issues that are in the world today. Yeah, and there's a lot of different things, but so I I didn't know exactly how how uh, how it was going to manifest. Uh, one of my uh, cousins had a boyfriend that was Puerto Rican, and uh-huh. so we used to make music. My brother and my cousin played. My brother was learning how to play guitar. He's a real musician. And so we were learning Beatles songs. So one day, um, this guy, his name was Miguel also, he shows up at the house and he gives me a drum. He, it was a conga. And he says, this is for you. And he taught me how to play basic uh, drum rhythms on the conga, you know. Mm-hmm. So we would go jamming everywhere. And I ended up moving to Colorado at some point in time. And I would always bring my drum. Go everywhere we went, we jammed, you know. Mm-hmm. So I ended up, I mean, at the time, it was uh, a friend of mine and I had opened up a garage Fixing cars, mind you, working on cars, right? In Colorado. And I met in Colorado, in Boulder. I was living in Boulder at the time. I lived mm-hmm. in Boulder for six years. And uh, I became friends with these guys that were starting a band. And I just so happened to be needing a place to crash. And, and my friend, who was a bass player, said, You know, I have, a, I know a guy in South Dakota that keeps, I was interested in learning how to keep bees. So let me call him up and see if he will, uh, if he's willing to take you on as an, because I wanted to learn how to keep bees. Mm hmm. So my, I moved into my friend's house, you know, waiting for this guy to show up that was on his way to South Dakota for a beekeeper's job, right? Where do, before you even go into this, where where, do, where does the inclination to get involved in beekeeping? What was the notion at that time that that was the point of interest? Uh, in my in the city where I grew up in, which is name has two different names. Almost all the cities in Guatemala have three names. They have a Spanish name, they have a, 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 a Nahuatl name, Nahuatl name, and then they also have a Maya name. Uh-huh. So in my city, which is called Quetzaltenango, right, which is a Nahuatl name, it's also called Xelahu, there was a little center called the House, La Casa de la Cultura, it was the House of Culture. Uh-huh. And then I realized that if I, that I, I had to make a choice that this is trying to figure out how to deal with Vietnam, right? Uh, the issue at one point in time, Everybody that I knew was going to Vietnam and they were coming back, you know, either <laughs> dead or missing an arm, a leg or an eye and or addicted to something, you know, so I said, this is not the way to go. So I was considering going back to Guatemala. And if I went back to Guatemala, one of the things that I wanted to do is create a center where, where, where people could come and experience culture, a house of culture like this, this guy had in, in Quetzaltenango, you know? Amazing. So one of the things that I realized is uh, there were several coffee plantations in the family that had been handed down over the generations, and I could see that being a way of creating agriculture and culture together, getting people tied with the land. And one of the ways to make money was to to raise, keep bees and sell honey. So I was, I was going to go learn how to plant spices, you know, grow spices and be a honeykeeper, and also establish a center of culture. That was, that was my goal. Amazing. I, I love it. Learn beekeeping, you know, so I go, okay. And, uh, and you know what's weird? This group of wild bees has made a nest in the back in the backyard of my house, and the shape of the hive is just like this big heart. Oh, <laughs> right now? Is that current? Yeah, right now. It's been there for like two and a half, almost three years now. It'll be the third. <laughs> so I'm going, hmm, maybe it's time to go back to learning how to keep bees. Wow. But anyway. yeah, yeah. I was waiting for this guy to show up, and he never showed up. In the meantime, my friends were going around playing all the ski areas that were close enough to Boulder. We go to Breckenridge, we go to, uh, 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 we ended up going to Detroit, and then I'm going to um, uh, Austin, and I, I, I ended up joining the band. They said, "Join the band. You're part of the band now." 
So off we went, and I started playing music. And what was interesting enough, we were um, we were friends with this couple that had a farmhouse way out in the boonies of eastern Colorado, about three miles from the Nebraska border. And they would do, uh, the woman's name was Marilee. Mm-hmm. Marilee would do a lot of the work that Edgar Casey did. Oh, she wow. Would, this guy named Jennings would come down from Colorado, and they would do readings on people, just like Edgar Casey, very yeah. similar, you know. We decided to get involved with healing, you know, trying to figure out how to change the consciousness. And so I started a lot. So a lot of the music that we played in this band was, uh, you know, was all related to healing, which mm. is interesting. Mm-hmm. So that was involved. And eventually we ended up, you know, touring. You know, we got hired to be a backup band for a very famous singer. We got signed to Capitol Records, you know, but it's always, always with the... Uh, with the idea that the, the changing in consciousness was was important, bringing yeah. healing, you know. Yeah. What, what, I, what was the name of the group? The group. The name of the group was Navarro. N A V A R R. Of course, I know Navarro. Yeah. yeah. So you were in Navarro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we did that, and we did that for a while, you uh-huh. know. And then the the band broke up. Like you know how we are, young people are not necessarily very clever, you know. Yeah. And so I ended up moving to LA wanting to be a studio musician because I, I spent a lot of time here recording. Yeah. So we ended up, uh, I ended up coming out here. And in 1980, I moved to LA in 1980, there was a big stag strike. Mm-hmm. No union work for anybody. So I had some friends that were working in post-production. I got hired to be a schlepping tapes for a, a videotape editing company. Uh-huh. And at the same time, there was a group of people that were interested in meeting Native American elders. And so we started a group here that was sponsored medicine men. What's important to realize is that all people carry a particular medicine. Everybody carries medicine, you know, mm. and we have each other's medicine or each other's relationship to spirit in order to become complementary instead of cooperation, not competition. Right. So in the process of that, we would sponsor ceremonies for these, for these uh, religious and spiritual elders for years. We did that for the better part of 20 years, you know. Starting in and 80? This is, it started in 1980, 81, uh-huh. and all the way through, I mean, some of our teachers, the people who became our teachers finally passed away. And the last one passed in 2010, I think, or 2009. But we've maintained active relationships with a lot of these uh, elders, leaders in different communities over the years, you know. I want to ask you about this. Like, do do you, are you putting this together as you're going? I mean, these threads, you know, from childhood and the healing and then the woman's eyes, you know, and seeing the safety. And then later on, you know, uh, the farm that you were talking about, about learning about beekeeping and, you know, and the the healing that was going on there. And then now this, is this an, are you seeing a path? you know, through all of this illuminating? I'm, I'm picking up the thread, like you're figuring out var- variables, you know, yeah. to include in the equation as we go along, right? Yeah. You, er- you earn as you learn is one of the maxims that I've learned over the years, you know? So <laughs> right, sure. So different configurations over the years, and I've tried to learn the best that I can to figure out what the next iteration is, you know? Yeah. I played music for, like, the drum has opened up the way for me for many, many, for many years, you know, in different configurations. There was, there used to be an African drum master that I played with here in L.A. for years, and Francis Awe would always used to say, the drum has taken me basically all over the world in some way, you know? It's opened up the way. Yeah. And so it always goes back to a certain level of, of consciousness that we have to cultivate as human beings. You know, I mean, that's what I've learned. Yeah. Through these native elders that were became our teachers, one of the things that I understood is that there's a, there's a, 
there's a debt that we have as human beings. We have taken ourselves out of the food chain very arrogantly as human beings, and we don't participate with the world. Mm-hmm. And not only do we not participate with each other, but we don't participate with the world. And one of the ceremonies that I was invited to participate in the late 80s was the Sundance. I, I Sundance for five years. In the 80s in particular, there was a lot of buzz about celebrating the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival on this on, this, on these lands, you know. Mm-hmm. And for many people, that's a terrible thing that happened when he came. It was unavoidable in some ways. But yeah. so uh, one of the things that we have to realize is there's, there's re- retroactive ceremonies or retroactive rituals that have to be enacted so we don't keep handing down the legacy of our ancestors, you know, that has to be changed through participation in ritual, learning each other's songs, learning each other's foods. Mm. And not that we want to become them, but we have to understand what the legacy is, what, why our ancestors created such havoc if they were not respectful, not only to themselves, but to the, to the places that they were visiting, you know? Right. The big piece of the puzzle is learning how to uncouple from, from the habits of the, of our ancestors that we don't necessarily want to pass on to our descendants, you know? Yes. So can you explain what Sundancing is for those who are just hearing about it for the first time? Sundancing is a ritual of renewal, which is basically you go for a period of four days with no food in the water and you dance around the tree. And there are different levels. So you, you not only do you pray for renewal for, the community for the next year, but also in the summit and the generations to come. And you're also at the same time retroactively uh, giving gratitude for the generations that, that made this possible, you know, that, made, that allow you to be here. Yeah. So it works in many different ways. And it also, for men in particular, we as biological creatures, we are not, we're very different from women in a very significant way. We don't carry life inside of us the way women do. Right. So men have to be taught what it is to be responsible for life, you know, mm. and that's just a, it's like a one-on-one in many, in many native cultures. So throughout the world, you have rituals. It's, it's one of the rituals of connecting uh, men to life, individuals to the web of life. Beautiful. Yeah. There are many other ways. It's just only one of them. Yeah. But it teaches basically it's an opportunity to learn how to get reconnected. My experience, my first year, the first year that I was, that I, stood in front of the tree I had my experience when the dance started is I felt like umbilicus reconnecting itself to the tree again beautiful I realized the tree became the world was now my placenta the world represented by the tree was my placenta and this is my experience there's nothing more I didn't read it in the book but it's just an energetic uh, sense and the vision that I had during that year you know yeah yeah. so I got myself connected in a way in a very intrinsic way to the web of life through that you know yeah. I mean, we're born, right? We're carried inside the mother's womb, and then we're carried inside the amniotic sac connected by an umbilicus. And it's one of the first things that happens after we're born is that we pierce the sac, and then the umbil- we start breathing, and then the umbilicus gets cut. Right. So in a way, we're like left without a connection to the holy, to the, to, to the sacredness of the world. And so we have to reestablish that connection through some sort of a ceremonial ritual act and this is one of the ways in which to do it Mm -hmm. that's beautiful did had you was that this is a the way that the the sun dancing and the experience spoke directly to you is this is this a common uh occurrence Uh, to, to have the umbilicus you know imagery to work with no, I don't think so. But I mean, I haven't really compared notes with a lot of the. I know many people that have that danced with me over the years, and we haven't really traded notes. But it's a very private. I mean, I'm sharing with 
everybody with you and with everybody that's listening to this, this is a very private experience, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> really appreciate it, man. Really appreciate it. And, and this is a place where people come to learn more about the sacred in all of its forms. And I appreciate this, the, the, that personal touch on it that I, I had never heard. I'd known about your son dancing and can you explain actually what a vision quest is? Because I know you had done some of that and you've talked about, uh, your experiences uh, as much as you could? Uh, a vision quest is really a, a coming of age ceremony, you know, where you basically, one of the things is to figure out what your purpose is, what your, what your, what your gift is. Mm-hmm. So it's to get uh, grounded and connected to the world and the way in which it was taught to me or the way I was presented with it, it was basically you go out and you make, again, you make connection with the world around you. Mm-hmm. You find out who in your family is and your family is not necessarily all your blood aunts and uncles and cousins, grandparents, right? But it's mm-hmm. also elements, fire, water, earth, air, all the plants, all the creatures, you know, so it's a way of being connected to the world again, through fasting and prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully you will have dreams. You get an image of how you are to be in service to life. You know, that's the way I look at my life. And these are my own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. So how can I be in service to life? You know, and which is not necessarily a calling for everybody, you know. Right. There are many ways to serve life, though, and 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 you know, there's just so many variances of serving life. I mean, sure. You know. Yeah. I mean, and and you've turned me on to many of those, you know. And so, speaking of which, like how how did how did all of this lead you to beginning to facilitate uh, sweat lodges? And maybe you could talk a bit about the functionality of the sweat lodge. So for about two or three years in the early 80s, uh, the medicine men that were our teachers wanted us to learn all the, all the ceremonies. And one of the ones that we learned was the lodge. And the lodge serves a lot of functions, but it's, it's, it, the idea is that you need a ritual purification. The easiest way to explain it is that the largest organ in the body is the skin. So the easiest way for you to release the, the toxins that are carried in the body is to put yourself in an environment where you can sweat everything out through your pores. So meta, metabolically, it's just a, it's just a ritual of purification of, uh, on, on a physical level, right? Yeah. But it also works on another level because you can purify all the other things that you think and that you feel that you have no place to put them in. Yeah. The big transformers, the medicine for us or the healing properties of the lodge are in the elements, fire, water, earth, and air, and how we use them in there. So you have physical waste, right? You know, and so you get rid of the physical waste in a number of ways. But you, what do you do with your mental waste? What do you do with your emotional waste? What do you do with your spiritual waste? You have no way of putting it. So the biggest transformer of anger, resentment, fear, anxiety is to, is to give it back to the earth in some form so that it gets properly uh, composted, right? <laughs> <laughs> So that's the, that's the ritual of renewal. If we don't, when you study uh, fertility deities from all over the world in, the, in traditional societies, mm-hmm. the fertility deities are also what we call the filth eaters, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you don't put your, your feces into the ground, there's no renewal to life, you know? Right. And that, that's where the participation with the world is really critical in, in a true fashion. What, I'll, I'll get very graphic with you right now. One of my jobs in the hospital I had to get guys ready for surgery the following morning. And one of the things that I had to do is I had to shave guys in whatever part of the body was going to get operated. And also my job was to give them enemas, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So early exposure you know, to the concept. Right. The culture in particular has needed an enema for a long, long time. <laughs> 
And this is what you're seeing right now. Uh, you need an enema of clonic proportions to deal with the, with the unmetabolized crap that's built up inside the, the pipelines of the culture. And this is what we're seeing right now. Right, you know? right. So you need rituals, and you have to put that stuff in the ground. In June of 2020, I was asked to go make a prayer at one of the Black Lives Matter uh, rallies downtown. Mm. And there was about three, 400 people there, something like that, you know, on that day. And I realized that I said to them, and I don't know how many people were listening or the PA system was working or not, but I said to them, we are here because our ancestors did not know how to get along with each other, mm. right? Yeah. So our job here is to change something significantly so that our descendants won't be here again doing the same thing, right? right, right. We want to leave a different legacy for them. And I said, it's okay to be angry about what's happening, but it's not okay to suppress it. It's not okay to take it out on yourself, and it's not okay to take it out on others. Mm. So what do we do with that anger? We have to tell that story into the earth. And that's the medicine, you know, that's taking care of that excrement that needs to get put back into the ground. You know, where is the pain that you feel? Yeah. I have a lot of stories about, I mean, you've seen it. I mean, we both were, we were, uh, for those I'll tell, I, I was asked to run sweats for a rehab facility uh, several years ago. Well, this would be 13 years ago to be mm -hmm. exact. Mm -hmm. And part of the thing that I saw in, in that, in that place is how to take that fear. And I developed language out of running those lodges because I had to figure out, I would only see these people for only one, maybe two, if lucky, three or four times. So you had to give these individuals an experience that could stay with them for a long time. Yeah. So would allow them to create a, a memory device in their bodies that would reference them instead of some, instead of some traumatic event. Yeah. You know, teaching everybody how to be, how to participate with what they carry and, and to put it back into the earth because that's where the medicine is. Yeah, and that's how we met, I mean, a few years after that, you know, very yeah. similarly and and changed my life. And certainly all the people that we brought up there, you know, I mean, you and I were doing them weekly yeah. for three years or so. And so, I mean, we're talking hundreds of people we brought to the lodge and, and in each of them, you know, that I've stayed in contact with, it's been an indelible experience. And I know that yeah. in this period of time, uh, during uh, the lockdown and during uh, the pandemic, the, the teachings of the lodge, the wisdom of the lodge, I've been pulling from more than in any of the other years. You know, it's mm -hmm. readily available. I, could you explain some of uh, what goes into prepping? And you know, and you, you had mentioned all the elements. Uh, it's relating to all the elements, um, but the lodge is constructed to be like a womb, right? And the, could you talk right, some about yeah. that and the stones, the insemination aspect? The stone, the lodge is basically it's a it's a it's a ceremonial steam bath. Is <laughs> That's basically what it is, and you do it in the dark, right? So you take stones and heat them up in some form of fire, and due to regulations, we have to use different environments, different methods to heat the rocks up. But suffice it to say, we get a bunch of rocks glowing hot and brought in with a pitchfork into a structure that resembles an, an inverted basket. Mm -hmm. We close the flap. We're sitting there in complete darkness. Now, when you are preparing for the fire, or when you're preparing for the lodge, you return to two different points of origin. You return to you recreating how the universe was created. Creation stories from all over the world start the same way. In the beginning, there was nothing. And then things begin to appear. So we go back to that point in time where everything was not manifested, but the potential was there for it to be manifested. And then you also go back, and when you bring in the rocks in, you're recreating conception of the individual. 
The stone becomes the sperm, the, the, the logic comes the egg, and you go in insemination, inside gestation, emergence, birth. So what I like to say is in case something happens between the beginning of the universe and now and the beginning of you and now, and I'm not saying that it did, <laughs> but in case something happened that made you forget how holy those, those moments are, this experience is now going to change you. You know, you will have a little imprint in all your body and your mind and your spirit that will begin to reference you to the fact that you are related in some form, that you belong here, that you have a place here, and you have received blessings. I can say this with impunity. No, I have four children, right? Yeah. And I know how each one of them was conceived. And I can tell you this, that out of my four children, only one was prayed for and thought about and prepared for thoroughly. And I know for a fact that many of the people that come into the lodges were not conceived under ideal circumstances. I can say, and I'll leave that story for people's imaginations, but that's important to go back and put a blessing there, not only on you, on the individual, but on the parents, how they were conceived. All those things have to be taken into consideration. There's yeah. no way around. And if you don't deal with that, whatever you're trying to do, it's not going to, it's not going to be rooted at the right level, you know? Yeah. I'm interested in some trans emotional transaction that happened after that, you know, because it's not referenced with the right, with the right ingredients to be able to understand it. You know, if you foundationally look at these things, I mean, I'll go to poetry now, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with Robert Bly for a number of years. I was invited to go um, be a teacher at the men's conferences in 1990. I started in 91. I think I started, you know, mm -hmm. Robert was very fond of a, a Spanish poet named Antonio Machado. And he said this, Man owns four things that are no good at sea, lifeboat, oars, uh, and a rudder, and the fear of going down, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> My image from that poem is that our culture, the way we are right now, we're in this boat, and something's making holes in the boat, and we're desperately trying to patch the holes up. I don't think we need to, we, we shouldn't be patching the, the, the holes, we should be concerned with what is making the holes? And number two, do we even need to be in the boat? Right. Right? <laughs> it in the water. To me, the the unknown is very different than unknowing, you know? Yeah. And so one of the biggest blessings that I've seen from two almost two years of COVID is the fact that the biggest blessing came when the plug was pulled on humanity yep. for a number of months. And everybody's worried about the world. We're not worried about the world. We should not be worried about the world. We should be worried about the humans. Yeah. My one of my teachers, my one of my adopted grandmothers used to say, "Don't pray for the earth; pray for yourself." Yeah. He said, "The earth does not need us. If the earth had its way, it would shake its back, and we'd be gone in just a second. <laughs> one of the things, the big things in the '80s, when we were learning all these, uh, we got in, and learning it, but also because we were invited to participate in these ceremonies, right? Mm -hmm. The nuclear buildup, the co the competition between the United States and Russia." When Reagan was president, you know, so one of the prayers that we used to do automatically, every time we went in, got into a lodge, the medicine man would always say, pray for Ronnie so he don't push that button. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And a lot of people were when, saying that at the time. Still accurate today, you know, so right. let's not, so let's pray for ourselves, you know, because we need to, and, and when you saw how the earth started to recuperate, yeah, maybe not doing anything for a while, it's also helpful. Yes, know? It certainly seemed to help the earth during that period of time. Those images from yeah. around the world of, you know, places in India, India being able to see the Himalayas and, you know. Yeah. 
Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find, I, I met you at a very special place that still is, I think I, I may have more regard for where we met than I do the house I grew up in, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we met at, um, Eric Wright's property yeah, Mar- in Malibu. Mary and yeah. Eric Wright's property in, Mar- in Malibu. Exactly. And Eric is the grandson of Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. Right. And he is also an architect in, in, in organic architecture. Is that, is that something right. like that? Yeah. We're building yeah. into the mountain and having it, you know, not something that's protruding, but something that's working with the, the, I mean, talk about returning to our, to nature. So we met there and, and this land I found out a lot about since uh, going there and with talking with Mary Wright, who's just a, there's some people that I experience where you come into contact with them and you can feel uh, not only how rooted they are in their naturality, but also uh-huh. just all the people that they've helped and benefited, you know, and she's one of those people of that I hold in the highest esteem and uh, both her and Eric allowing the lodge, uh, the lodge ceremonies to go on there for the number of years that they, they had, how could you, how did you meet Mary and Eric and start doing lodges there? I got invited to uh, go to uh, Robert Bly and Michael Mead did a day for men in LA 1989 or 90 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I knew the guy that had uh, sponsored the event. So they said, bring your drums. All right, bring your drums. So we went to the Japan America theater and there was 700 people there at, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so this is my version of the story. Okay. So there's, <laughs> so I'll use it. I'll tell it using my words, but at the end of the day, they went through and rounded up all the ethnics that were in the in the in the room. <laughs> uh, the few Latinos, the few blacks, the few uh, Asian, you know, people, and they said, "Are you guys interested in meeting Michael Mead and James Hillman?" And we, and we said, "Sure." So we ended up going to some magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard, and there we sat with Michael Mead and James Hillman, and they realized that these men's retreats were uh, very white, you know, and they wanted to make them more multicultural, mm-hmm. you know, and interested in participating. And we said, oh, yeah, sounds interesting, you know, and we agreed that 12 of us that were in that room to spend a weekend together, and then we survived <laughs> the weekend together. Amazing. We helped put together a, a retreat in Malibu the following year. Wow. So at the end of the meeting, you know, uh, Michael Mead goes, if you're interested, I can invite you to go to one of the men's conferences in Mendocino so you see what it's like. So one of the guys in the group said, I have these friends in Malibu that have some land. So let me call them up, see if we can spend the weekend there. And that was Eric and Mary Wright's place. Wow. So we went and spent a weekend there and we survived. And one of the things that we did is we ran a lodge, if I remember correctly, because there was a lodge there that had been built originally by one of the medicine teachers that I had. Mm. And so, and the, the rest is history. I started working with Michael Mead and Robert Bly, but the whole thing was basically predicated on creating better relationships between all the races. That's the ultimate goal, you know, Beautiful. and by learning each other's ways, you know, instead of trying to suppress, by getting curious enough to figure out how to hold space because it's very volatile, you know, did all, all 12 show up. I mean, for this, did all 12 agree? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of these guys today to this oh. day, you know, and from there, we started mentoring groups. We've begun mentoring groups that we've been working on for 30 years now. We've been mentoring kids. We've had, I've had, I have many sons through this project. You know, mm-hmm. we started running for these guys up there in 95. 
Uh, several organizations have grown out of that, and we still continue that process today. You know, some of these guys are now in their 40s that are now fathers. They have children, you know. So it's the whole next generation of, of, of basically figuring out how to learn from each other instead of compete with each other. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, so, man. So, and that started yeah. the relationship there on the land. And then how did you take, or how did you become the main facilitator of that? And I imagine you built, you talked about building the lodge that I had, I had taken part in for a few years. I it, took it over because my, one of my teachers had built the Ferris lodge there and then somebody else took it over and then we shared it for a number of years. And then I just took it over after a while because things change, you know, people move on. So that was the thing. And you just basically learn how to, how to take one of the things that we had to do is learn how to build lodges in the very beginning. So I built a lot of lodges in different parts of the country for my teachers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. And, and that land also, I have this, uh, I have an audio clip of Mary and I'm just going to take a moment here to step away from the conversation and play you an audio file that I have. I recorded Mary Wright standing at the medicine wheel on this beautiful land, telling the story of who she had to bless it. So this is Mary Wright talking about preparing her land for sacred activity. The Dalai Lama asked that Los Angeles be the place in North America for a sacred music festival. Every four years, there's a lot of little events that go on all over the city. To kick it all off, they wanted to celebrate the mountain, so they did a sent his lamas over from Tibet with a traditional clay vessel that had been prayed over for understood to emanate peace wherever it goes. So in the middle of the wheel, this deep and this big around, is one of these vessels. And we also invited the Chumash, the native people of this land, to come and be part of the ceremony. And a 95-year-old grandfather, Samu, was one of them, and he said... I was here once before. My elders brought me here when I was seven. They told me where you've put this wheel, that this was a special place for my people when they came from the islands. Usually you do things that might offend the indigenous. We were so glad it didn't. They said, this is where my people... That means they had to walk up. They all lived down in the lagoon area. Imagine walking up here to do ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were so glad to... Brave people. This is a very powerful place. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you realize that for me in particular, we as humans are, have completely forgotten what our relationship to the earth is. And then we are basically here to be in a cooperative, uh, what do you call it, reciprocal relationship with the earth. So over the years, that, had play, that place has been opened up with that kind of intention to be able to share that ways of being reciprocal with the earth with each other so everybody that's come from different parts of the world to pray and to celebrate there this is what we share with each other how to be reciprocal not only with each other as human beings but with other species as well as other beings and also with the earth you know yeah. all the large community of beings you know for but a part of 25 years we ran solstice and equal in equinox ceremonies there and the whole purpose was to be able to just be there and let the earth know that we were here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it was that simple, you know? It's like it's like we were, we were reenacting the whole idea of, I was very fond of this. Some, some I was trying to explain it, uh, it to people sometimes, what we were doing there. And I said, we're like Horton Hears of Who, you know? 
We have to let the earth know. We have to let the universe know that we are here and we want to participate again because we, we are, we're tired of being amnesiacs because we are, we, we are forgetful species, arrogant also. And we forget that we have to participate in the ways of the universe, you know. And that land has facilitated that for a number of years for many people. Thousands. And it was to, all, to almost everybody. And unfortunately, because of COVID and different things changing, it's not open that way anymore. But what people have learned by participating in, the, in that process over the many years that so we did those ceremonies there, now they have that knowledge internally and they can go and practice that wherever they are. Exactly. You know, in the, yeah. And that's what is how to propagate that. So you don't have to only get it in one place. You can get it wherever you are. And that's very much like, I mean, you and I have talked about at one point because I had done ayahuasca um, a couple times. And uh, I have, I, by the way, I haven't gone back. I hung up the phone. Um, I got the (laughs) message (laughs) and you were very instrumental in, you know, uh, letting me know that, you know, because I had a lot of people in my life, uh, including somebody who I brought up to the lodge who you met early on, who was an ayahuasquero and, and was just doing it monthly. And that turned on him at one point and really yeah. handed him his ass and left him in this deep hole of, of, uh, you know, not knowing who he is or what's up and what's down. And, you know, and he's recovered uh, and he's has yeah. a happy life now, but there was a period of darkness. And I remember sharing that with you, and you, you know, making some correlations between what happens in the psychedelic experience can also happen in the lodge or does happen in the lodge. And then also in certain states of meditation. Can you talk about the, you know, uh, just on the heels of what you were just saying, you know, these, uh, these experiences, much like the psychedelic experience that I've found is like, these are peak experiences, but they show you, po- you know, they show you possibilities. And then you, you, you have to integrate that into your life and, and it has to be an active process it's not something you can bank on just being there you know like all of our best intentions it's something that has to be activated and so can you talk about the correlation between the lodge psychedelics meditation as you've shared it with me in the past and even if you want to talk about your experience with ayahuasca which you shared with me um boy that's a complicated question and I'm going to try my best to give you a cohesive answer that's going to that's, that's not that's not going to confuse you or confuse anybody that's listening to this <laughs> because you're looking uh, at ways of looking at what the implicate is for inside of us what some people call what is going on mm-hmm. right so for a lot of us I mean I see this I see us as uh, beautiful energetic configurations you know of beings and through experiences in our life, we get compromised in some form or another by the biography that we inherited, right? One of my teachers said to me years ago, the difference between uh, emotion and feeling, do you know what it is? And I said, no. So he said, feeling is biology and emotion is biology and biography, mm. right? right. That, that simple concept in mind, you realize the, the biology and the biography, the biography that we inherited, right? From our family lineages, but culturally, right? Historically, mm-hmm. going back to all the civilizations that have existed in the world that have framed it and that have in some form or another created partial systems of beliefs. And this is what you're looking at, right? Yeah. And how do you connect to the world that with, with the, if you connect to the world with a partial system, you're only going to have a partial connection and you won't be referenced correctly at a core level. 
Core level for me has to do with being able to understand intrinsically who you are and how you are connected to the world in a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual way, right? Yeah. In many different ways. In any any way, any any obstruction that you have, where, how, whatever that is, you know, and you have to look at what the history is that you inherited, what the lineages are, what your parents' histories were, what your grandparents' histories were, what lands they came from, what stories they, they follow. So all those things play into yeah. And then how do you use to cultivate your relationship with essence? You know, yeah. my friend Humberto Acabal, the great poet from Guatemala, uh, said this in a poem. He said, roots tell us through the flowers what the earth is like on the inside. Oh, Roots tell us through the flowers what the earth is like on the inside. That just changed and me forever. Flowers there and they die because life out here is shit. Yeah. A pile of shit. So, but if you go back to that first stanza, right? Roots tell us through the flowers what the earth is like on the inside. That means that we, all of us, have a sort a direct connection to source, to spirit, without any compromise, by any not compromised by any kind of ism, any condition like that. When you when you have a true through line, you don't have to get in the way. Yeah. And so, what is getting in the way of you being connected to source directly? So, any of these methodologies, right, whatever it is whether it's Buddhism, whether it's Christianity, you don't need an intermediary. You know, yeah. It's directly the spirit. The intermediaries a lot of times create a lot of static. Imagine if you, every time you wanted to make a phone call, you heard about how great AT&T was or Bell Telephone or whatever, and you're going to be able to goddamn phone call. And, you know, and this, is, this is what religions are like in systems of beliefs. In many ways, they get in the way of you having a direct connection to spirit, whatever that is. Right. So... Any intermediary, right? Any and, and there's no and you have to cultivate uh, a relationship with energy and the, the the shortcuts, right? Yeah, which are plant medicines in the way, right? Mm-hmm. And the, that's why the ceremonies are so critical. You take the ayahuasca out of context, it's going to kick you in the ass Fuck if you don't. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing with peyote. The same thing with mushrooms. The same thing with with uh, people are using ketamine now. There's all kinds of things, but those are just tools and we have an addictive we are addicted to catharsis in this culture in particular <laughs> that's not my words or a friend of mine's words you know yeah. you want the that experience but you don't want to take the responsibility for what it is to understand what the response what that experience what it entails you know yeah so yeah. Uh, i'm giving you the um, uh, these are very clear cut direct ways of looking at it and i've thought about this for many 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 years you know yeah and i've seen everything happen that happens uh, inside of ayahuasca ceremonies, inside of peyote ceremonies. I mean, I that building, I took enough LSD and and, <laughs> and methadone and psilocybin in the '60s, so I understand this very well. Yeah, you know, I can say this with impunity that at the end of the day, there's nothing that uh, if you have an epiphany type experience through breath and through relationship to the universe in a physical direct way, you can never replace that with anything else, and you cannot take a shortcut. You know, you cannot cut corners. And for a lot of individuals, if you don't have safety parameters put in place that allow you to orient, there's a great poem uh, by the uh, poet William Stafford that says something to the fact that if you're not careful with each other, all the horrors of childhood come storming through the broken dike. Mm. So I'm going to go back to refixing the inheritance that we have. What are the conditions in our homes? What did we grow up with? You and I have dealt with people that are in rehab for a number of years, yeah. and the signs are all there. 
And I see that everywhere. I've, uh, I got involved a lot with restorative justice or what they call now transformative justice. And, and, and all the materials, there's tons of materials out there. But in one of the things that I was dealing with, I got interested. One of my mentees turned me on to a series of books written by a Canadian lawyer named Rupert Ross. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to deal, how to deal with the native problem or how they're referenced to in Canada as the aboriginals. Mm-hmm. They had a problem with suicide, drug abuse, and crime in all the reservations in Canada. And they said, you go deal with it. You figure it out. And so they realized that uh, at the end, there was so much crime, suicide, and all. And many is because their lives have been seriously disrupted because all the kids got put into boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the common threads in all of this is the fact that sexual abuse is so prevalent everywhere. I mean, you start in the homes. You know, I, and yeah. I've seen this for and over again. So if we don't deal with that issue right away, and I don't care what your ideology is, yeah, right. I've been talking to this to people for a number of years, and I've been following what I call the dialectics of activism. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I was a kid, uh, I used to stay up and listen to the speeches of Che Guevara, mm-hmm. right, and Castro, because it was fascinating in the sixties, in particular, to hear them in Spanish in Guatemala. You know, I stay up with my shortwave radio, and I still remember the the little bell chime logo from Radio Habana Cuba, you know, and the whole thing. And at the end of the day, you know, you realize that one of the things that happened to me when I, when I was going to go back to Guatemala, I read all about the diaries of Che Guevara, and I realized what a, that was a mistake to go down that road because he hadn't done his homework. But I realized you're not going to change the world with a gun. You have to change it through the culture. That's why I wanted to go back and rebuild a culture. But how do you rebuild a culture if you don't understand what the level of internal work that needs to be done? One of the lines that you always used to say is, how do you know what you need when you don't know what you already have? Exactly. Yeah. So the internal work is, is going and re-sanctifying the core of your being in some form or another so that you know that you belong here, that you have a place. Yeah. And until you do that, nothing, if, it's, if, those, if those markers, those anchor points are not there, strong enough, whatever you do, it's not going to, it's not going to make a difference because eventually you will succumb. Yeah. You're seeing all these full revolutions, all these movements end up crashing and burning because at the end of the day, the head, the people haven't done the internal work. I had a, um, I talked to a gentleman last summer who worked for uh, one of the police departments here in California. Mm-hmm. And his job was to go out on patrol with the, with, with, people had, that had graduated from the, uh, from the academy. And he said, I have, when I'm looking at this patrolman, he said, I have to make sure that he's, that he's, not, a, he's not a four-year-old watching his, his father beat his mother. Mm, <laughs> right. Things that are going on in people's lives inside their homes that we have to deal with. That's why I was saying, going back to the emergency room, when I was looking into that woman's eyes, when she finally said, I am safe, I, you can just imagine what the horror of her home life could be or what. Right, right, right. These are the things that if you're not willing to deal with them, no matter what your ideology, whatever you want to get involved with. I've had many activists in my, in my, in my sweat lodge over the years. You know, people are getting going down to Colombia. Many of them, they wanted to go to the WTO uh, demonstrations in Seattle 10, 12 years ago. And I said, you have no business going around trying to fix the world if you don't fix your own internal life. It was the first place where I had actually, where you had directed me to pray towards myself. I'd been in a nine year experience in Tibetan Buddhism, just meditating on, uh, you know, and directing mentally directing the benefit of my meditation out towards 
all living beings and the earth. Um, and you, in the lodge, in, in the, the various stages of the lodge, there's the prayer round out of the four rounds, at least, you know, in the beginner's lodge that, that you ran. You would always direct us to pray for ourselves, and you would always say something about, like, don't pray for the sea urchins today, you know, <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> They're going to be fine. They're, they'll be fine. Pray for yourself. This is the time to be, and I, you know, as counter to, I felt like I'd always been thinking about myself, and then I found Buddhism, which helped me, and Buddhism and recovery, which helped me think yeah. about others for the first time. And so this was a drastic you know, about face. And it was uncomfortable because I'd been trying to get away from thinking about myself as much, but you, you know, the, the, the lodge, the, um, the instructions in the lodge are so specific. And I remember having this prayer that I didn't even know I needed, you know, and that came out of me. And, and in that lodge was somebody that I would end up, uh, creating our own, uh, treatment center with who heard right. me and heard this prayer and got ideas about us opening our own place and mm. then, and then turn that into a reality without me even knowing until it was already finished to hand to me. And so right. very, very powerful place to pray. And in that way, you know? Yeah. Cause this is rooted properly, you know, it's properly connected. It's rooted at the right level, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. It's anchored at the right level. If you know, if you don't anchor it at the right level, it's never going to take hold. I remember having a dream years ago when I was getting right. It was like a week before I, w- I got married the first time, and I was building a house in a swamp. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can't you can't build a house in a swamp. You know, you got to have, <laughs> or if you're going to do it, you got to make sure you got to get down to bedrock. So where is the bedrock? So you know that you belong. And the the beautiful thing about this, Jamie, is that I was talking to this with a friend of mine yesterday, is that the universe is a freaking mystery and it moves. Like talking about how narrow-minded we are as human beings, right? The earth is spinning. Yeah. Right? It spins at a thousand miles an hour at the equator. Right. 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 And the North Pole is hardly anything, but... And it goes around the sun at something like 65,000 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So when you want the exact moment of the so- of the solstice or the equinox, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, it's the relationship between, you know, and you can't go around always wanting the light, always wanting the light. You have to understand that there's a fundamental, we have to reclaim, re-sanctify the dark. That's where it all begins. Right, you know? right. And, and have- this is, feels like, you know, you've mentioned a few times, like in the last 20 minutes or so, you've brought up a lot of concepts that sound like the notion of being in right relation. Can you talk about that? Because it's, it's really what you've been saying this whole time is us being in right relation with ourselves, our story, the story that happened before here, uh, our relationship to the earth, you know, but, you know, the concept of being in right relation. Can you talk about that? It's just a matter of not making everything the other, you know, it's like, you know, I am the world and the world is me. I am the universe and the universe is me. There is no other, you know, no in them. It's all us. And until we figure that out, what is it about them that makes us uncomfortable? Because that means that also that's inside of us. Yeah. Matakuyasin, right? The bit that you say about Matakuyasin before the lodge and, and instructing us all, can you tell people what that phrase means? It just means I am connected to everything. I am related to everything and everything is related to me. Right. You know, so that means that no matter where you are, you will always be home, you know? Yeah. 
Beautiful. That, that's what's really important. So no matter how uncomfortable it is, you have to really learn how to accept that. And what has made that part of you that you don't understand or that's uncomfortable, why is it so? Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting story about that. I, I know two people that work with this in a very different ways, but my friend Luis Rodriguez, the poet, mm-hmm. he was doing a poetry reading in Appalachia somewhere. And Luis, if you know about his life, he grew up in the gangs and, and, and watched, you know, he was a gangbanger for years and was in prison out of prison and eventually uh, did an incredible job of understanding and embracing his, his humanness, humanity, by learning how to write poetry. And he's done an incredible job of that. But anyway, mm-hmm. he was reading his poems about growing up in the hood and being in a gang and then getting out. And then he was doing this reading in Appalachia, of all, of all places, mm-hmm. cold country, white, to use that word that, that I don't like to use in that context. But mm-hmm. he was saying the kids, uh, several kids came up to him after the reading and he said, can we talk to you? And they, they went into a room all by themselves. And they said to him, you are the only person besides the recruiters for the KKK that understands our pain. Wow. That was a mind-blowing experience for me. This is where you have to get to what happened. We are angry because we are in pain, and we are in pain because something happened to the love. Right. right? And the love is some some universal thing that's not compromised by anything, you know, but it's just, and love has to be expanded to, to really understand, it's not just sex, it's not just lust, it's not just, you know, eating good food, it's not this or that, it's not having a lot of money, but it's a much, much deeper concept that has to be re-sanctified and amplified so we can understand what it is. So this is our, a, long, uh, a roundabout way of getting to what you were asking me earlier. Yeah. About, it's understanding the different layers of relationship and what that means, you know? Yeah, so, yeah and so the, in the KKK, in that, in that example you know, the example you gave earlier of what we do with our anger. And so yeah. the KKK might be in touch with the suffering aspect of, of existence, but then the blame, the thing that gets directed towards others. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and putting it into that vehicle of destruction, you know, in the next vehicle, the anger itself isn't the, the, the thing to recoil from. It's a motivator, no. you know, in this example, I love that because it's like, you can see what the next step would be for the KKK, but you know, for your friend, it's sort of, you know, in that zone of, well, what do we do with this next? What do we do with the, the fact that right. we, we, we recognize our pain? Right. How, well, how do you create inquiry to allow you to, to be in that in safety so that everybody can be uncomfortable with that unknown, yeah. right? I love that they had to right. take them into a back room too, you know, to like, it's, it's, right. it's, this is the only place where it'd be safe to talk and to acknowledge something like this. It can't be done out in the open. It's very symbolic also. I mean, uh, there's a guy named Daryl Davis who goes around right now. He's got a lot of tremendous notoriety because he will go out and invite, he's black and he invites people to the KKK to a meal, you know? Oh, I know <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I watched a special on him. See, that's the same inquiry, right? The understanding yeah. how to create commonality and not just a quick commonality, but one that respects the sanctuary of, of the individual, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you go back to reclaim your humanity. Yeah. To me, we're men and women. We're human beings first. Human beings in a larger community of beings, right? Yep. And then we're men and women second with everything in between. Right. And then come all those socioeconomic and ethnic brackets. And we have to re-sanctify ourselves as human beings and a larger community of beings. All the other things don't matter. We don't need another faction. We don't need another label. I, I'm telling you, this. we are so fragmented as a culture everywhere. There's one more fragment. This fragment doesn't talk to that one. 
and the politics, the dialectics of, uh, of like I said, of activism are, are very much confrontive in that way. As well-meaning as they may be, they don't necessarily contribute because of how they are uh, at the level at which they operate. They only contribute to the factionalization of the culture. I you know? agree. This is really, I agree. You know, this is a really important thing to consider. Yeah. How are you going to get beyond that? so that it doesn't keep perpetrating the same thing. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, this fragmentation, it, it, and I've been talking about it a lot in the last year, that it, it, it's a form of recognition of finally having a voice. Like, oh, it's fi- I finally have a voice at the table to speak about my uh, being abandoned, you know, in the conversation. Right. And so what we do next with it is really the, the thing. You know, what we do yeah. next with our individuality being recognized Everything has to be merging us back into the one or else we're off course, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. that's how I feel. I have a couple more questions. And, and I also want to talk about just at, towards the end. I know that you were involved in uh, both the films uh, Baraka and Samsara. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I want to talk about that in a minute because I love both of those films and I, I show them to people uh any 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 takers i'll sit down and watch these films with them it can be incredibly moving and devastating and it's it's life in its totality i feel like um yeah you know uh, but we'll get into that in a minute i want to know about the future of the lodge you know with the way things are going now uh what do you foresee do you feel like we'll get back to a time where the lodges will be uh you know, activated again and, and in use? Uh, yes, it, it, this will take time, but it will pass. It, it will pass, and we just have to be very careful. I mean, I've been in only four sweats in the last two years, you know. Yeah. So, and for me, one of the things that I was taught that, that was really, uh, they said to us, the old people said, learn this really well, internalize it, take it into you, because someday you might not have it, and then it lives in you. So, and I, and I realizing now when, when the pandemic hit in the height of the pandemic last year, I realized how true that was. Oh, We've yeah. internalized teachings. Now I can modify, you know, I can, in music, you have what you call transposing, right? Which you can play any, any song in any style in any key. And this is what we've learned how to do with, with the information that, we, that was taught to us that we earned. So this is what we're doing. Yeah. You know, it's amazing that you're saying that too, because I, as I said earlier, you know, i I've just been pulling from the wisdom of the lodge and, and it had been three years or so before the, when the pandemic hit, it had been three years since I'd been in a lodge with you, you know? And, and so, you know, this particular time to pull from that wisdom and have it so readily available um, and and feeling connection to that place, you know, like what you said, you know, I'm, I'm now the home, like the ceremony and the land is me. You know, it lives in me. I'm I'm home all the time. You know, and I yep. learned that there, and that's readily yep. available. Um, so that's good to hear. Uh, the other the other question is, how does one involve themselves? I mean, you had a a very uh, seamless and effortless, uh, even though it's thematic with your your life since you were very young. You know, a seamless entry into uh, these ceremonies and these practices in these ways. What would be the advice that you give? for someone who's wanting to involve themselves in some of these indigenous practices and customs and ways, you know, while not being, you know, appropriating and maintaining respect, how does one, how would one navigate that? Well, there's different ways to going about it. I think the first thing is to know the history really well. Yeah. 
So I have, I recommend people books, you know, read Custer Die for Your Sins, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, mm-hmm. two very deep books, uh, 1491. I mean, I have, I have a whole curriculum that I, that I, that I put together over the years from the books that I recommend. And you have to understand the smaller picture and the larger picture. 1491 is a great book to read by Thomas Mann. Uh, Fool's Scroll by Thomas Mails is a great book to know. 1491, and then also read uh, People's History of the United States, right, mm-hmm. by Howard Zinn. Those are those are those are hard books to read, but you got to understand that this is what you want. You want to know the truth, right? And you want to know f- real good facts about where you belong and where you come from. And you have to understand also what the history of Europe was from the time of the Romans, you know, because there's such a legacy there that goes all the way back to the origins of civilizations affect the way we think and the way we are. That were put in place at the time of the Babylonians or pre-Babylonian times is we're going back five, 10,000 years now that have been in effect since then that affect the way we look at things, the way we see things today. So you have to rearrange your semantic structure, the words that you use, how you make meaning. All these things have to be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a very simple example. English is a noun-based language, okay? When you use nouns all the time, you objectify everything, including yourself. <laughs> when you objectify everything uh, around yourself, you uh, you remove accountability for your relationship to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying don't use English. Don't do that. I'm just saying be aware of that, so that when you objectify yourself, you are not accountable to yourself. When you objectify those around you or the world around you, you're not accountable anymore. We have objectified everything around us. I read that in a, there's a beautiful book called Sensitive Chaos. It's all about the laws of emotional water written in the early 1900s. You say sensitive yeah. chaos? Sensitive chaos, yeah. Wow. Theodore Schwenke. Wow. It's, 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 it's a, I think it's a rural anthroposophy, one of the anthroposophy books, but it's all about patterns of movement in water. Wow. But it's, it's really interesting because you find correlation, all these different things, the same information is there. You have to look for it. Yeah. If you want the larger picture, everybody should read John McPhee's book, Annals of the Former World. It's a treatise on geology, but it's just it's a mind blower when you sit down and you read 600 pages, right? It's mm-hmm. amazing. Did you say but annals? The, the large annals of? Annals. Yeah. A-N-N-A-L-S. Yeah. Annals of the Former World by yeah. John McPhee. That's a great, I've read it about four or five times, you know, and it's like, or read Dune, right? If you don't want to read Dune, just Find the litany against fear. These are all different things. I'm giving you a lot of you, your listeners a huge yeah. batch of information here that they can go, oh, any way you want to get in, there's ways to get in to figure it out. There's sci-fi way. There's the geology way. There's a poetry way. I got tons of, we got tons of mythological way. There's, there's many ways to get in. The universe wants us to ask questions, you know, yeah. and they want to know that we're interested. They want to know that we're curious. Right. You know? Right. So, and you know, one, one time at the lodge, I, I ran into an elder and he, he, he suggested a, a, a book by Evelyn Eden. And I made, oh, yeah. I made note of this book. I planned on getting it. And a couple of years later, I hadn't got it. And Lacey found her way to Evelyn Eaton on her own. She found a book at <laughs> Bart's Books here in Ojai and mm-hmm. started reading it. And I was like, wait, I think this is the book that was recommended to me at the lodge. And, and yeah. Evelyn Eaton's book, uh, I Send a Voice. And yeah. she has a couple books, but that one particularly has been so influential in Lacey's uh, spiritual mm-hmm. development. And it's a fascinating story about Evelyn Eaton. Uh, and oh, you, yeah. yeah. Met, I met Evelyn oh, years ago. Oh, my God. 
Stacy's gonna flip. That's insane. She was great. Did yeah. you meet her at a lodge or a ceremony? Uh, when I got it, when I first got started with this, how how I got led into this, I, a friend of mine that had a recording studio in, in one of the canyons here in Topanga, he called me up one day. He goes, hey, man, that's how I used to talk. Hey, man, I got these chicks here, and we need some congas and some tracks. So why don't you come over? Yeah. So I go over there, and the two ladies were recording a bunch of ceremonial tracks, uh, and they wanted to make a commercial enough tape so they were native chants that, and that I played congas to. Yeah. So at this, it was this is a multicultural gathering in 1981 or 82. I can't remember exactly what the year it was. And I met a bunch of people there, and Evelyn was one of the people that was there. Amazing. So I heard stories from her, and I really liked her and liked her book, and we spent time talking, you know. And the one, the medicine man that she talked about in her books, we went up and we used to go up and sweat with him. Raymond wow. Stone. Oh, wow. So he was a remarkable human being. He was something else, you know. So, he, he, yeah. She died a year before Lacey was born, so we have a running joke about Lacey being the uh, Evelyn's reincarnate. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, her, her whole story spoke so directly to Lacey's, uh, yeah. a lot of elements of Lacey's story. Um, finally, Coming to Baraka and Samsara, how did you get involved with those? What was your what was your uh, your contribution? Oh, and my friend uh, Michael Stearns, the composer, is a dear dear friend of mine, and I had been working in posts for a number of years. And uh, when they went around, uh, they went for some for Baraka. They went around the world, I think, for two years with a very small crew. When they got to Bali, they shot the the Balinese monkey chant with yeah. uh, they it all in 65 millimeter right mm-hmm. and the camera that they use was not there's a device to mute the camera call the camera called a blimp so the rental for the blimp was too much so uh for most of the film with silent they didn't need a they didn't need to record sound but for the monkey chant because they had 200 guys in bali doing it mm-hmm. they needed to to record the sound but the, the the sound that the camera made they wanted to record the chant but the sound that the camera made was not like a freight train yeah <laughs> Yeah. So all the tracks for the monkey chant had to were useless. So I had they cut the original and they said, "Would you fix this?" Wow. <laughs> said, so I spent. They wanted me to go to Bali and record the guys doing the monkey chant, but I couldn't go because of my work schedule. So they sent a guy there to record the monkey chant, but when he got there, he could only find fifty guys instead of two hundred, and they didn't do all the parts to the chant. The chant has about six or eight different. Uh, rhythmical parts that are all syncopated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I got, I, I spent about a, a four or five days working on the track and I could not make it work and I could, could not make it work. And finally I was doing a gig at some club in, um, in Beverly Hills. I played with a jazz band there mm-hmm. and I had floating in the, in the middle, of, just in the middle of the gig, I see a head floating in the middle of the club and I hear this voice, me any sacrifices. Nobody's made me any offers and it was Hanuman, you know? Oh, Next morning, I go out and put a Hanuman thing on the, yeah, on the altar, and everything starts to work. So I realized I had to get as many guys as I knew into a recording studio, and we did all the single parts. So we got about 50 guys into a studio that I knew. After that, we went and, and I did. I spent another four or five days working on the chant, and finally it all worked. So the, it's a re, everything, every single, there's over a 1,000 audio edits in that track. Wow. Right? The monkey chant is part of the Ramayana, mm-hmm. so the battle chant. The way I understand it is the ritual battle between Indrajit, who is the son of the demon, the chief demon Ravana, and Hanuman. Yeah. Right? <laughs> battle between the two. Yeah. So once 
understood that I can make the chant work. Wow. And I did, so that took me over a week, almost two weeks to do, to recut the whole chant. I'm looking so at a statue of Hanuman right now, and Hanuman's been really big in our life, you know, uh, rooted to, uh, through Ramdas Maharaji. Uh, that's, so I guess Ramdas is basically the servant of, of, of Ram. Hanuman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's all these traditions are coming together <laughs> in this conversation. I can't even believe it, you know. It's uh, so many paths, but they all intersect. Miguel, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing hour and a half. I really thank you for your time. I thank you for teaching me the way of the lodge, all the songs, you know, uh, allowing me to, to, to be your assistant all those years for yeah. uh, your you know, ongoing mentorship and uh, for this offering today, which is a very concise, uh, solid, accessible place for people to uh, get in touch with stories and, and, and uh, practices that have really benefited my life. So I'm super grateful to have this. It's, it's a recording that I'll, I'll treasure. Thank you for having me. If they're interested in more information, they can get a hold of me through you and I can point them to the poetry that I use as reference, you know, the, the books are available if you want to know what they are, Yeah, you know, you, they can find them, you know, I'll send directions to them, you know, but thank yeah. you. Yeah. And and you have a book coming out, right? It's already out. It's published by Tia Chucha Press, uh, T-I-A-C-H-U-C-H-A, Tia Chucha Press. Uh, they have a cafe in, in, uh, in Silmar here in LA. It's called In the Courtyard of the Moon. <laughs> mm, beautiful. All right. Yeah. That's perfect, Great. man. Thank you so much, Miguel. Talk to you soon. Right. Hopefully see you sooner. All right. Take care. Blessings to everybody. I hope so.